Greetings and welcome once again to the Live Happy Now podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Houston. Thrilled that you're making us a part of your day wherever you are in the world and however you may be listening. Now, we're going to ask something of you, and we've been asking this for a couple weeks now, but we still want your opinion, and we're going to give you stuff if you give it to us, possibly. All you've got to do is fill out a two-minute survey at livehappy.com slash survey, and you could win some free Live Happy swag. They've got some really awesome t-shirts that could possibly be heading your way, some cups as well, some other items in there. I always say cups. i got to find out what's actually in this closet of awesomeness, and I will report back. You have my word. But uh, please take that survey, livehappy.com slash survey. And also check out the latest issue of Live Happy Magazine, available wherever fine magazines are sold, and available on the Google Store, the Google Play Store, and the Apple Store. Uh, that's now available on your phone as well, so you can take it with you wherever you go, and we encourage you to do so. So, if you're so smart, then why aren't you happy? Live Happy Science Editor Paula Phelps dives into this question today with Raj Ragunathan. He's a professor of marketing at the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. And he's interested in exploring the impact that people's judgments and decisions have on their own happiness and fulfillment. And Raj also has an online course on happiness with over 120,000 students from literally every country in the world. Every one of them, even the new ones. Here's what he had to say to Paula. Well, Raj, we're really, really happy to have you with us here today. And I think one of the first questions that a lot of people are going to wonder, you're a business school professor, so happiness isn't necessarily the first thing that's going to come to mind uh, Uh that you're going to be studying. So can you tell me how you got interested in the subject of happiness? Yeah, a lot of people do ask me that question, and uh, they're surprised. You know, they, many people have even told me things like, you know, when we think of business, uh, we think of money and achievements in many ways the kind of opposite of happiness. You know, we don't really think of business people being that happy. How come? So, yeah, there is a long story behind it, and um, the short version of the story is that I was always, from my childhood, interested in the topic of happiness. I just didn't realize that it could be studied and taught and researched. Um and then in 2006, uh, 2007, both years, I took a bunch of MBAs with me from Macombs to India. And I noticed a couple of things um, uh, with my own batchmates. You know, I got an MBA from India too, uh, 15, year, 15 years before that. And I noticed that a lot of them had achieved a lot of conventional success, you know, status and fame and power and wealth. But um, they weren't very happy. You know, and I kind of noticed it even within myself, actually. You know, on on paper, uh, I'd achieved quite a lot. I had a PhD. I was a professor at a top uh, 20, 25 business school in the United States. I was, you know, doing well for myself. But um, internally, I didn't feel that I'd really, um, I was experiencing the sense of fulfillment and meaning that I'd hoped um, I would would feel if I achieved all those things. So I asked myself this question. Uh, that as an educator, what, what am I ultimately responsible for? And uh, I felt that ultimately what we're responsible for as, as educators is to give the students the skills and the tool sets required to lead a fulfilling, meaningful life. If at the end of everything that we do, um, the students don't feel that they're leading fulfilling, happy lives or don't know how to go about leading such a life, then I felt that our knowledge, etc., was was really, I mean, superficial at some level. So I turned around to my students uh, there um, in India, my home students, and I asked them if they'd be interested in a course like this on happiness. You know, the central question in the course would be, uh, the, our, our focus would be, what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life? And many of them said, yes, we'd absolutely love it. 
Um, but uh, we were at a party and people had had a little uh, beer to drink, and I wasn't so sure that they were being serious. So I came back <laughs> and I put a quote together, and um, it turned out that um, you know there's a lot of hunger for it. It's been six years since I've taught it, and every single time I've taught it, there has been people on the waiting list. Recently, I offered a course on Coursera uh, on the same topic, and I've had uh, over 125,000 students within a year. It's not even a year since I started it. And it's been rated the top uh, MOOC, uh, massive open online course of 2015. It's not so much to kind of pat myself on the back. Uh, there really is a deep hunger for the topic of happiness, even among, perhaps especially among, the business world. Well, so I, I found it really interesting that you had discovered the people who are successful in business aren't necessarily successful in life. And, mm-hmm. and so, how, one, how did you find that out? You've, you've alluded to mm-hmm. it a little bit here, but how did you really mm-hmm. dig down into that and then determine where it was falling short? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question again. Uh, so first of all, I have to say that uh, it's not really my research that shows it. It's a big question. You know, what is the co- correlation between various yardsticks of smartness and success, like intelligence or IQ, education and you know uh, wealth and access to resources status power fame beauty control etc and happiness and um, in many cases there is a positive correlation but the correlation isn't as positive as you would think it would be um, and certainly after a certain point for example wealth in the united states it seems like after about $75,000 a year for a household this was a study done back in the um, back in 2008, uh, almost 10 years old. So, you know, maybe about 90,000 now, you know, adjusted for in- inflation. Um, so beyond that, wealth doesn't really contribute uh, much to happiness. Fame, it turns out, you know, similar thing. It doesn't really contribute to happiness. Um, so um, it, it's a very uh, prevalent finding if you look at all the kind of, you know, corpus of findings that are relevant to this question of what is the relationship between smartness slash success and happiness, there doesn't seem to be a positive correlation at all. And uh, so I just kind of use that as a platform. And of course, I told you a little bit about my own personal experience on this. Um, I use that as a platform to dig a little bit deeper into why this might be the case. And um, so I've done some studies on this. And in one of these studies, we look at what's called mental chatter. You know, this is not what you're consciously thinking of, uh, but rather what's going on in the background of your mind. You know, there's a a little bit of a voice in the back of our head commenting on what we are doing at all times. Um, and that voice in your head, uh, the mental chatter, could either be positive or negative. And when I ask people, you know, how positive is it going to be, uh, do you think it is? Um, most people say about 60 to 75% is going to be positive, uh, when in reality it's the opposite. You know, 60 really? to 70% really? yeah, of those mental chatters are uh, chatter is negative. And uh, so I dug a little bit deeper into what um, categories of negativity this uh, mental chatter falls into. And and it turns out it broadly mostly falls into three big categories. One is thoughts about inferiority. Um, How, how, um, uh, you know, how how do I compare to other people? I stack up as being inferior to them, those kinds of thoughts. Or thoughts about love and lack of fulfilling intimate uh, relationships in your life. And the third category is lack of control, which, of course, you know, most people now can relate to of uh, biting off more than you can chew, feeling a sense of time scarcity, as some researchers call it, and not feeling like you're in control of your life. So these three categories of um, uh, the, most of the negative chatter seem to fall into these three categories. And does it make a difference if you are very business-minded, if you're very goal-oriented and, 
and focused on success and wealth and, and these life goals. Does that mm-hmm. make a difference in the kind of mental chatter you have going on and does it make a difference in how you experience happiness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here's where it gets a little bit nuanced and uh, subtle in a beautiful way, I think, You know, which is that it's all right. In fact, uh, even a desirable thing to aim high and have goals and want to achieve them, etc. Where it gets problematic is how you approach that set of aspirations and achievement orientation. Uh, broadly speaking, I, I talk in my book about um, approaching these goals and desires you have with either a scarcity mindset or on the opposite end of the spectrum, what I call an abundance mindset. So a scarcity-minded person, if they approach these goals that they've set uh, themselves, um, what they would do is um, motivate themselves by comparing where they stand with where other people stand. So if they want to be the best painter, let's say, right, they they not really focus so much on, you know, am I getting good at this technique or that technique or, you know, am I getting into these uh, so-called flow states? Am I really enjoying what I'm doing? Do I have a gift and what kind of gift do I have and so on? So those set of questions take a little bit of a backseat and what assumes greater priority in their mind is how much does another painter earn or how much of a fan following does he or she have and where do they get invited and what kind of exhibitions do their paintings get exhibited and and so on. So there's a tendency to compare oneself to other people. And that approach combined with this desire to achieve a lot is is the death knell for happiness. Uh, It's definitely going to deflate your happiness levels. In fact, you're going to be pretty miserable. But if you have those high achievements, but you're kind of internally focused, uh, you know, you want to be better than you were before, uh, and you really focus on, okay, what am I uh, really good at and what do I really enjoy doing, and look at those two kind of questions and find something at the intersection of those two. You know, do I enjoy acrylic painting or do I enjoy watercolor painting or do I enjoy, you know, completely a different, you know, speed painting, let's say, right? Uh, There's different kinds of paintings and what kind of painting do I enjoy and where am I really uh, skilled at? You know, where do my aptitudes lie? And Sir Ken Robinson uh, who's written a book called The Element, calls that thing, you know, that intersection set of what you enjoy and what you're good at, your element. And if you start with that, you're less likely to compare yourself to other people. You can have high achievements, you can you can aim high, but uh, still your happiness is not going to be affected that much. Well, it, that's a great point, and so many of us are raised, though, being compared. So we kind of mm-hmm. learn to compare ourselves to others because there's, you know, like you have that brother that's the yardstick by which the rest of the family is judged or whatever it is. And so if someone has that mindset and it comes to them at this point fairly naturally, how mm-hmm. how do you break out of that? How do you switch <laughs> your train of thought? Mm-hmm. That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, it's actually the $28 question because that's how much my book costs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, no, um, uh, that's a very, very important question. And broadly speaking, I think the question is, you know, if you're conditioned to be a certain way, how do you decondition um, from that sort of, you know, counterproductive conditionings, right? Uh, you might be conditioned to eat unhealthy food, for example. Uh, how do you break from that habit? And that's a question that has been tackled by so many different uh, researchers and authors, and the and the broad theme that seems to emerge is, of course, the first thing is to become aware of it, right? Uh, that I'm prone to this, um, that I keep comparing myself to other people, and I feel jealous or proud depending on how I come out in this particular comparison. Um, so to recognize that you have that tendency, and you have the tendency to kind of justify it, even right? Many people 
will, first of all, not admit perhaps that they compare themselves to others, so self-awareness becomes important. And then they'll, um, even if they are aware, many of them will justify it and say that, you know, that's how I motivate myself to uh, aspire to do better than, um, you know, I could before or uh, be the best in the world, become a master at it, be known for it, you know, contribute somehow to the world and so on. So all these kinds of positive spins on what's essentially a negative tendency, at least with, the, with regard to happiness. And actually, even with regard to success, it turns out that comparing yourself to other people and motivating yourself can work in the short run, but in the long run, it's actually going to backfire. So how do you, uh, yeah, so you, you become self-aware, and then you recognize that this is counterproductive. Um, this is not good for my happiness. It's not good for my relationships. It's not good for my success. Uh, so then comes the next step of being intelligent and becoming knowledgeable about, okay, then how do I motivate myself, right? Many of us get stumped at that question because we don't realize that there is this whole alternative, much more productive, much more healthy way to motivate yourself, which is to pursue what's in your element. I just talked about it, right? Mm -hmm. Identify what you're good at, what you enjoy doing. So you become aware and then you realize it's counterproductive and then you have to decondition yourself from that scarcity mindset. And that, you know, I, I talk about a few exercises that take you away from that scarcity. And uh, you have to realize that you have a, most people have a tendency to compare when they're under stress. So it's important to avoid those kinds of situations that force you to engage in those social comparisons. Take nature breaks, you know, go out into nature and... Um, express gratitude. You just build that muscle of abundance over time. So that's the short answer. What Go happens ahead. when what you're really good at and what you enjoy isn't perhaps the most mm -hmm. successful? What, you know, maybe you went to school to be an accountant, but what you really mm -hmm. love to do is paint. What mm -hmm. do you do then with that uh, disparity? Yeah, I have identified something that I think is in my element but I really don't think it's going to pay my bills, right? I mean, that's kind of your question. Mm -hmm. um, what if I find out, you know, I'm good at painting, but I'm kind of too late now maybe. I'm 45, and I've spent all this time learning how to do accounting, and uh, I don't enjoy it, but, you know, it pays the bills. Uh, great question. Uh, and what seems to emerge from the literature on this is that uh, there are two kind of, okay, maybe three paths that you can take, right? One is just, continue on with being an accountant and, you know, um, moan about life and be miserable and then um, kind of really uh, hope that one day when you retire, you have enough money and then you can start, quote-unquote, living your life from that point onwards, which is really a shame. It's like postponing your life till it's almost too late, actually. Okay. Uh, the second path yeah. is to kind of take a discontinuous jump, right? Save enough money or think that you have enough and then all of a sudden one fine day resign from your accounting job and then get into painting, Right. Uh, and what the research shows is that that approach, it can work, but it has a very high chance of failing because uh, two big reasons for this. One is that what you think might be in your element might be very different from what is actually in your element, right? I mean, many of us dream of, you know, when I was a kid, if I were asked, you know, what would you like to do? What would you, would you dream of doing? I might say something like, yeah, I would like to be an engine driver or a pilot or something, right? Um, so you might think you enjoy it, but you may actually not enjoy it, right? So um, that, that's one reason why that discontinuous kind of jumping from one job to another job fails. Another big reason why it fails is because um, 
most of the jobs also, apart from the things that you enjoy doing, also involve other things that you may not enjoy that much. You need to be able to stomach them. Like, for example, being a painter might involve um, actually kind of dealing with people who uh, organize exhibitions, right? Um, and then getting into the politics of that and figuring out in social media how to promote your product or whatever, you know? So you need to be able to enjoy all those peripheral things that count for uh, making you a success in, in that particular field. Um, so uh, it turns out that the much better path uh, is to take a kind of a slow and organic path towards transitioning from your current meaningless, boring job into something that is more meaningful. And that involves basically kind of dabbling, spending two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, increasing amount of time over the course of next few weeks, months, and years, um, doing more and more of the stuff that you think uh, lies in your element. And if it's painting, then, you know, going and um, joining a painting class or, you know, being an assistant to an already well-known painter, calling up people and then, you know, asking them if you could display your paintings in their restaurants while you hold on to your day job, right? I mean, you're not letting go of your day job. Uh, and over time, if you're really good at it, then it'll obviously expand uh, in terms of the amount of time you spend. Um, and uh, what will happen over the course of four or five years is that you'll naturally break away from what you were doing before into doing this. You'll have developed contacts. You will not be pissing off your family by taking this discontinuous jump. You would be, wouldn't be jeopardizing your, you know, family and income on the, uh, you know, the the welfare of the other dependents on you and so on. Yeah. That's that's great advice because there are so many people that think, oh, I would do this if only, and so that's, that's yeah. a wonderful way for them to start looking at that. And exactly. You know, you, yeah. You've referenced your book. Uh, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy? And I love that title. And and can you? Tell me, there's you know obviously a, many many books on happiness out there right now, and mm -hmm. can you tell us how you approach this subject differently? You've given us a taste of that, but can you kind of tell mm -hmm. us in a nutshell what makes it so different? Yeah, so the three things that I think make it different. One is uh, obviously you know it's written by me, uh, so it's got any book has a certain personality to it, and um, my definition of happiness, by the way, I ask people the reader to define happiness for themselves because. It can mean so many different things to different people. My definition is uh, being lighthearted, but not at the cost of compassion or rationality, right? Being lighthearted, but not at the cost of compassion or rationality. And so I, um, I've tried to kind of write the book. I mean, it's kind of natural for me to write in a way that expresses that sense of lightheartedness. So even though it's research-based, even though in a sense it's on a heavy topic, you know, happiness sounds like a light topic, but once you get into it, it can get pretty heavy pretty fast. Um, I've tried to approach this, uh, but I've not abandoned or compromised, I hope, uh, rationality or, or compassion in, in how I write it. So that's one thing. It's, uh, it's different in terms of its voice, so to speak. And the second thing, uh, way in which it's uh, different, is that um, if you look at all of the books on happiness, right, these tend to fall into one of two big categories. Um, one is the kind of spiritual category, which is very non-scientific um, in general. Um, uh, but at the same time, it calls for relatively deep-seated changes. So it might call for kind of having a faith in God, right? Um, or it might call for changing your values at a very deep level. Uh, then there are these uh, scientific books that are very well-backed by science. But by and large, you know, I'm not trying to kind of, you know, uh, generalize here too much, but by and large, um, uh, they call for relatively um, superficial changes that are backed by a lot of science. So cut-and-paste certain elements into your life, go and make new friends or get organized in your life or, you know, give yourself little treats for achieving goals or something like that. What my book is, uh, how it's different, I think, is that uh, it's based on science, 
But in the end, if you read through it, through these little exercises, uh, what it calls for is a deep-seated change. So eventually, by the end of the book, if you follow the exercises and you kind of uh, imbibe and, and think through and, and accept uh, and understand uh, the, these concepts that I talk about, uh, it'll lead you to um, a really, really fundamentally deep-seated important change from scarcity to abundance. And that change, though, is achieved through these scientific um, findings and not through just faith or, you know, just telling you that this is how it is. Um, so that's a, a second thing. And then the third thing is that um, uh, the way in which this change is affected, though, is by little mini baby steps. So it's not like I ask you to one day kind of, you know, wear a totally different hat and start living a totally different life. It's through these little exercises that independently seem like, you know, they're easy to do and not really going to make, make a big difference to your life. But when added up, uh, they do kind of, you know, these small changes have big effects. So those are the three ways in which I think my book is different. That's interesting. And, you know, one thing that really struck me is the way that you're going after very smart and successful people. And it made me wonder if if we let our intelligence get in the way of happiness sometimes. Do we overthink it? Do we, do we, mm -hmm. does our intelligence become a stumbling block to attaining happiness? Yeah, uh, I do think that um, there is such a thing as um, mind addiction, um, which is fueled by a belief that you can arrive at a better solution to any problem or challenge if you uh, think a little more about it, right? Um, and this is one of the things that I think our education system does so well in, in training us to think like this, that um, you get more marks or more points and more pats on the back for thinking longer, harder, um, and explaining things a little bit more uh, to yourself and to others in arriving at your solution. If you say that, look, I really like this product or this painting because um, I'm instinctively drawn to it, uh, you don't get a whole lot of points for that. You know, <laughs> uh, you have to explain it. <laughs> Why is it that uh, you like it and so on? Um, and in that process, I think what happens is, unfortunately, uh, while it has some advantages, I mean, clearly there are many contexts in which thinking through, um, you know, looking before you leap uh, is a very good thing. Like, for example, which set of stocks you want to buy. You don't want to say that, you know, the, I like the Apple logo, so I'm going to buy that, right? right? Uh, but, but there are many other contexts, and perhaps as many, if not maybe even more contexts, in which it's very important to um, tap into the intelligence of your gut, right? There was one study done where they, offer, they, they asked um, participants to choose one of five different posters, and one set of participants was asked to choose a poster based on just their gut instinct, you know, just go for the one that you like. The other set was asked to think long and hard, and were also told that after you choose a poster, we're going to ask you to justify your choice, right? So these guys really, I mean, use their head a lot in deciding which poster to select. Then they looked at the happiness levels and the satisfaction levels of these two sets of participants with their chosen posters, and it turns out that it turned out in the this, in this study that six months down the road, um, the participants who chose the posters based on their gut instinct were far more satisfied with their poster than the set of participants who had to who, who chose it based on uh, you know thinking through it. Um, and this kind of a circumstance, you know, where what we really want out of in this study it was you know posters. What we really want out of posters or out of um, you know, decoration, sort of a wedding ring, for example, even the partner that we choose, the house that we live in, etc. even, you know, relatively big expenses, big ticket items, what we want ultimately is a sense of enjoyment, meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction, emotional things, experiential things, not functional, rational things. 
Um, in those kinds of contexts, it makes it makes a lot of sense to really tap into your gut. And unfortunately, when you when you are mind addicted, when you have to think through and justify everything in your own mind before you make a choice, you're distancing yourself from tapping into that intelligence. You're becoming mind heavy, or what I call uh, mind addicted. And those are the, some of the things in your book. You give us some tips for how to to overcome that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Sure. And yeah, 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 yeah. I, I can talk a little bit about it if you want. Sure, sure. Yeah. So yeah, in, in brief, I mean mindfulness, right? Uh, which um, is is uh, all the rage right now. There's a lot of research on it too. Everyone's talking about it. But in brief, mindfulness uh, is a technique where you become aware of something without judging it. And um, so in this case, it would be okay. So what are my emotions telling me, right? And the way that you get to reconnected with your emotions, we all knew it as children. Uh, you know, children are so good uh, at um, figuring out what they enjoy doing and what their gut is telling them. Uh, we just lose touch with it. So you're trying to reconnect with it um, through the practice of mindfulness, um, just sitting quietly and, you know, deciding what you're going to focus on, maybe your breath, maybe eating a grape, maybe, you know, watching a beautiful scenery or sunset, and, and just um, getting directly in touch with your sensations, uh, not through the filter of your mind. So you become what's called um, not mind aware, but uh, you're trying to exercise bare awareness. You're, you're aware, not barely aware, but you're, you're aware in a bad way without the weight of the ruminations or thoughts or commenting judgments accompanying your awareness. Uh, you get back into being bare aware. Um, and so that's the idea in mindfulness practice. And when you do it, um, for a long enough period of time, um, you become better and better at directly getting in touch with your sensations. And once you do that, then you'll be able to kind of judge, okay, so what is my body or my sensations? What is my gut telling me about which way I should go here? And it can be very, very useful, particularly in situations in which what, you, what you're looking for is the sense of enjoyment or fulfillment or something that's emotional or experiential as opposed to functional. And it really becomes, too, a case of practicing it, right? Like doing it over and over, trying it maybe on small things and for a few minutes at a time and then getting more Mm -hmm. comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult is that, and it takes time, is that um, particularly for people who are mind-addicted, right? I mean, this is the crowd that I'm talking to. Um, The mind keeps coming in the way, and it's very difficult to be, aware without judgment. I mean, all of us are capable of being aware of something, but as soon as you're, for example, called to become aware of your breath, you might start saying, you know what, it's a little bit shallow, or, you know, I'm not breathing well through my left nostril, or something like that. Um, And then, you know, one thought leads to another, and then you might say that, well, other people seem to be doing it well, and how come I can't just stay quiet and, you know, not fidget, and, you know, my mind is so... um, so uh, uh, active or hyperactive, and then you might start justifying it, you know, and one thought leads to the other, then uh, then you kind of chastise yourself for not being able to pay attention to the thing that you were supposed to pay attention to, you know, so you get into a negative loop, and so on, and you just have to go through that. You, you can't avoid it. Everybody has to go through that, you know, and that's why it takes some time. But if you're patient with yourself, and in this context, I want to very quickly uh, put in a plug for one of my colleagues here at UT Austin. Her name is Kristen Neff. Very important right. to practice self-compassion. You just just be nice to yourself. We talked about conditioning some time back. You know, you've been conditioned all your life to think this way, right? in your education, in your schools, in your uh, family, even, right? And you're paid for thinking and overthinking. So it's going to take some time to to let go of it. That's, so it is going to. That's take great, time. but we can let go of it, right? You're telling us it it can be done. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can be done. And uh, I don't know about, you know, eventually ending with not being able to never think or not think uh, the state of no thoughts. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't think that I've experienced it or if I have, that it's been very fleeting. But my relationship with my thoughts has changed. You know, I, I no longer feel the urge to constantly criticize or judge or comment or categorize or anything. I mean, sometimes, I, for example, if I'm paying attention to my feelings, uh, I do a body scan or something, and there's a feeling that there's no word for it, you know? But yet mm -hmm. there's an urge to kind of categorize it. as oh, That's like closer to an itch rather than, a, you know, a pain or something. Um, and, and just letting go of that takes some effort because we, we're paid, we're incentivized to articulate things. And there is a value to it. Um, it helps us communicate and achieve goals that uh, involve cooperation with others. But there's also a beauty, beauty and a value to just getting directly in touch with something without looking at it through the mind, you know? Well, that's terrific. You've given us so much to think about today, and I know we have some great resources for our listeners. Um, they can also pick up your book. You've got your online course. But before you go, can you give us the one tip when you are having an off day when things just aren't quite there for you? What's the one thing you do that our listeners can do to put themselves mm -hmm. back in the on the road to happiness? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question, and I think that uh, it's going to differ a little bit by who they are. Um, what I do um, is I, I go for a run, and uh, it might work for some people. Um, for some other people, it might be calling up a good friend and talking to them for five minutes. Uh, for yet others, it might be listening to a happy piece of music. Um, what I, I think that, you know, another way to kind of look at your question is, in general, what's the one uh, thing that you could incorporate in your life, integrate into your life that is going to have a powerful effect uh, in, in in centering you and making you feel a sense of harmony from within. I would say it's you know, leading a healthy lifestyle. You know, yes. uh, what's been shown in the research is that the most powerful determinant of your happiness and fulfillment is relationships. Um, so if you want to be really happy, then uh, it's no longer a luxury to have a really deep, intimate relationship. You absolutely need it. It's a necessity, but Relationship, uh, you know, it takes two to tango, right? I mean, you can't just, uh, well, you know, kind of snap your fingers and uh, wish that somebody uh, lands up having an intimate relationship with you. So the one thing that is under your control is eating well, sleeping right, sleeping better, basically at least seven hours of sleep, and uh, moving more, exercising. If you can do these three things, right, eating right, eating healthy food, and sleeping sufficiently seven hours, and then moving you know, at least, let's say, 45 minutes of exercising every day. Uh, if you do these three things, uh, you'll notice a significant improvement in your happiness within two weeks, I would say. If you would like a free sketch note of this episode and a free download of the article Stop, Think, Live, visit livehappynow.com. You can join us next week as pop sensation Lisa Loeb joins us to share more on the Camp Lisa Foundation and her new children's album Nursery Rhyme Parade. And we'll even probably talk about her glasses as well, because how can you not talk about her glasses when you talk to Lisa Loeb? It would be a crime against nature. Join us for that episode next week, wherever you are finding our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And hey, remember to take that survey, livehappy.com slash survey. If you would like to let us know some good things or things you'd like to hear in the future or even some criticisms, we'll take those too. You can find us on Twitter at livehappy or on facebook.com slash livehappy, or you can send us an email podcast at livehappy.com. For Paula Phelps, Raj Raghunathan, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, thank you, and remember to always live happy.